So our first speaker is uh, well known to all of you. He is Dr. Trip Gulick. He's a professor of medicine and is division director of ID at the Weill Cornell Medical Center. He is also the chair of the HHS, or co-chair of the HHS guidelines. Um, so I can't think of really anyone better to give us an update on what's new in investigational antiretroviral drugs and new strategies. Welcome. Thank you, and uh, just to add to my bio, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. I went to Walter Johnson High School. Go Spartans. Okay, good morning. I have no conflicts to disclose. And what we're gonna go over today is talk about the latest data on investigational antiretroviral drugs some data to include information on long-acting drugs, which is a strategy that we begin to think about for certain patients that we're taking care of. And uh, I'm going to feature at the end two new mechanisms of action that you may not have heard of before. Today in 2019, we have 32 drugs approved for the treatment of HIV infection, and we've had antiretrovirals now over 30 years. 2018 was a big year. Three new drugs were approved last year, and you know them. Bictegravir, Ibilizumab, which had a novel mechanism of action. It's a CD4 post-attachment inhibitor, and Deraverine, the new NNRTI. But the good news is that we're going to ask a question. <laughs> Which of the following investigational drugs is earliest in clinical development? Is it cabotegravir, EFDA, fostemzivir, or GS2607? And go ahead and vote. And always has my back. Now I must be completely devout. Exactly. I can't have even one shred of doubt. And anyone know what show this is from? Book of Mormon, you win. You get a cup of coffee. So they're going to play all show tunes for me. Okay, so many of you deduced correctly that the ones with letters and numbers are probably the earliest in clinical development. And you would be correct. So GS2607, I'm going to mention towards the end, has a brand new mechanism of action. Okay, so here's the pipeline of new ART agents. And you can see that there are new members of classes we've known and loved for years, like the nukes, non-nukes, protease inhibitors. There are new entry inhibitors with new mechanisms of action, which I'm going to talk about, and, uh, and a new integrase inhibitor. And then the two new classes, one is the unfortunately abbreviated MI class, which is maturation inhibitor, and then CI is a capsid inhibitor. So rather than try to review all of these, I've picked out ones that I think are either the farthest along in development or potentially offer real benefits over what we have today. So let's jump in. When we talk about nucleosides, we've had the present nucleosides for years. We're comfortable with these. What would be better than what we have today? And uh, the buzzword is convenience. So can we do better than one pill once a day? And then do we have any compounds that might be active against nuke-resistant viruses? 
So the candidate compound in this class is uh, MK8591, also known as EFDA, and the A stands for adenosine, so this is an adenosine analog. It's a DNA chain terminator, and it inhibits reverse transcription in a novel way. It prevents translocation of the reverse transcriptase enzyme along the template. So a new abbreviation to learn is an NRTTI, a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. It's got a very long half-life, 50 to 60 hours. What does that mean? This compound potentially could be dosed weekly. So can you imagine if we could devise a whole regimen that we might have a once weekly regimen for our patients? And I think you would agree that many people might benefit from that approach. It accumulates in target tissues. It has potent antiviral activity, both against wild-type virus and, importantly, multidrug-resistant strains. It is active against HIV-2 as well. And part of the excitement about this compound is that it's active at low doses and that there are parenteral formulations that are being designed. So here's the early phase one data, which was dose escalation. Important to know about this, at time zero, they give one dose of the drug and then they follow people for up to 10 days later. And you can see at the highest doses tested, they still had about a two log drop in virus. So one dose, 10 days later, you're still suppressed. So this drug really does have a long half-life. It also has activity against nuke-resistant strains. So what you're seeing here across the bottom are strains with common mutations against nukes, and then it's testing a multitude of compounds, but the blue dots represent the MK8591, and being below one means that they're either equivalent to wild type or even enhanced, and I'll just point out a couple of these. One is the M184V, common, and you can see this compound retains activity against that one. Then there's K65R, which as you know is selected by tenofovir. This compound retains activity against those strains as well. And then when we begin to think about the TAMs, the thymidine analog mutations, what you see here is two, three, four, five, even six TAMs, this compound still retains activity against those viral strains. And then lastly, Q151, you'll remember, is an unusual mutation, but it confers pan-nucleoside resistance, except to tenofovir, and this compound retains activity against those strains as well. So potentially, this compound is active against many nucleoside-resistant strains. This was one of the first clinical trials of MK8591, a double-blind placebo-controlled three-panel trial. It was actually HIV-negative participants, and they were looking to see if low doses of this compound could achieve target concentrations. So look at the doses there, 5 milligrams, 0.75, milligrams. And the good news, just to, to uh, summarize, is the triphosphorylated um, version of MK8591, so that's the active compound, did achieve the target concentrations, even at low doses like 0.25 milligrams per day. They are moving forward with studies in HIV-positive people. There's a phase two study in treatment naives, MK8591 plus 3TC plus Duravarine. 
Now, why would they do that? Oh, right, it's the same drug company that makes those. They are also considering weekly dosing regimens. People thought, well, if it's active at low dose, maybe it would work in prevention as well. My colleague, Marty Markowitz from New York, actually uh, oversaw the first study of MK8591 in an animal study of prevention. They gave a pretty low dose, 3.9 mgs per kg weekly, and it was protective for eight macaques who were given rectal challenges of SHIV, the related virus. And then they went lower. So uh, he presented this study at last year's CROI, 2018. Look at the doses that they, they uh, tested here in the second bullet, 1.3, mgs per kg. So eight macaques per group. And you can see at the two higher doses, all eight remained HIV or SHIV uninfected after challenges. And only when they got to the 0.1 dose did they begin to see that some of the monkeys became infected. So they concluded that this compound was protective at exceedingly low doses. And these are equivalent from these animals to a weekly dose of 250 micrograms or 10 micrograms per day in humans. So we're talking exceedingly low doses that potentially could be protective. And again, as you see here, all of the placebo animals became infected and then very few of the animals receiving the MK8591 as a prevention, so as a PrEP drug. And this is moving forward in PrEP studies. Now, one of the interesting things are the long-acting parenteral formulations. And this is animal data, again, rats on the top and non-human primates on the bottom. And uh, what I want to tell you is these are drug-eluting implants with MK8591 inside. And some are bioerodible. Are you aware of this? So they can put it in, and then slowly the drug elutes, but also the implant disintegrates inside the person, so you never have to take it out. And what you see in these graphs, and the details aren't important, but that after you put these implants in with various kinds of implants that they tested, you got target drug concentrations for up to three, four, five, even six months after putting it in. So is this the future of antiretrovirals? Will we have some patients where we implant a combination of antiretroviral drugs, and then it just elutes over time, and then the implant disintegrates. Again, I think we could all think of patients who might benefit from this new strategy. Okay, integrase inhibitors. We have four of them. We use them all the time. What would be better than what we have today? Again, more convenient. Can we do better than one pill once a day? And what about activity against integrase-resistant virus? So of all the compounds I mentioned today, cabotegravir is farthest along in development. It's an integrase inhibitor with a similar structure to dolutegravir and selects for a similar resistance pattern. In oral formulation, it's highly potent. That's been published. But the excitement with this is a nanotechnology formulation that can be given uh, parenterally with injections. This compound also has an exceedingly long half-life, 21 to 50 days. So what's being looked at is monthly injections for treatment or every other month for prevention. And uh, side effects with this compound so far have been limited to injection site reactions, 
which are nearly universal, but very few people discontinue because of them, so they're fairly well tolerated and mild. And also, they decrease over time. And uh, as I mentioned, phase one, two, and three studies have been completed. So the one that's the longest is the phase two latte two study, which sounds pretty good right now. <clears throat> and this was a study of an all-injectable regimen, the first study in our field of such a regimen. Phase 2B non-inferiority study. They enrolled treatment naive people, just over 300 of them, put them on an oral regimen with the oral formulation of cabotegravir plus two nukes, a back of your 3TC. Then if people suppressed, and nearly all did, they were randomized two to two to one to these regimens. The uh, orange and green ones are an all injectable regimen. So IM cabotegravir with IM rilpivirine, the NNRTI that we know well, given every other month, Q8 weeks, or in green every four weeks, or the other group kept receiving the oral three drug regimen. And you can see the response rates, uh, how many people suppressed to less than 50 at 96 weeks. And you can see it's over 84% in all groups. So this is the first demonstration, two-year data, to say that an all-injectable regimen can safely keep people suppressed. And then in Glasgow, we heard an update for three-year data. And you can see the two injectable arms continue to do well. The uh, side effects, again, were limited to injection site reactions. And overall, very few people discontinued. Less than 1% discontinued because of the injection reactions. So they concluded that IM, the all-IM regimen, intramuscular, was non-inferior or comparable to the oral regimen and well-tolerated. Again, can you imagine some of your patients might benefit from an every four or every eight week treatment, all injectable regimen. Again, I think we probably can. And then came phase three. So these were data that were presented at CROI, two parallel studies. Chloe Orkin from London presented the phase three FLARE study, randomized international open label non-inferiority study with a margin of 6%. They enrolled over 600 treatment-naive adults, including uh, over 20% women, and then gave them the standard regimen of abacavir, 3TC, and dolutegravir, triple combo PO regimen for 20 weeks, and then if they suppressed, they randomized them to the injectable cabotegravir rilpivirine. They did a run-in with oral formulations for four weeks to make sure that they were tolerated, and then switched them to the all-injectable. And then the control arm was to continue the oral dolutegravir regimen. And how did they do? So uh, I apologize for the small graph here. But what you see is green is the all-injectable regimen, and pink is the continuing the dolutegravir regimen. And well over 90% in both arms were suppressed with these strategies. When they did the formal testing for non-inferiority, it excluded 6%. So the all-injectable regimen was non-inferior to the triple oral regimen. And uh, again, side effects were limited to the injection site reactions. There were a couple of virologic failures, three on the long-acting regimen. What was interesting is that they were all at the Russia site. No collusion there. <clears throat> and it was A1 strain of virus, as you know, the most common that we see is B. 
And those patients did select out both non-nuke and integrase inhibitor substitutions. It's not clear why this happened or why it's limited to the Russian patients, but keep your eye on that for the next study I'm gonna show you. So this concluded that the all-injectable regimen, non-inferior, these are the kind of data that would support approval when submitted to the FDA. And then in parallel, Sue Swindles from Nebraska <clears throat> presented the phase three ATLAS study. This is a switch study of the same regimen. So open label, again, non-inferiority with a margin of 6%. They took adults who were virologically suppressed on two nukes and either a PI and an RTI or integrase regimen. So basically everybody that we treat today. Um, over 600 people, about a third women, were enrolled, and they were randomized to continue the ART that they were on or switch to the all-injectable regimen, CAB, plus ropivirine, again, after a four-week oral run-in to make sure they were tolerated, and then monthly injections after that. And how did they do? Again, well. So green is the all-injectable, pink is continuing on the, pre on the previous regimen, and again, you see well over 90% in both groups did well, suppressed below 50, and they did achieve non-inferiority in this study as well. <clears throat> and then we go back to Russia. So there were three virologic failures in this study. Two were at the Russian site. And again, the A or A1 strain of virus selecting out non-nuke and integrase substitutions. So we saw the same thing in two independent studies uh, this is being further looked into. But all in all, the IM regimen, non-inferior to the oral regimen. Again, these two studies together, powerful amount of data to submit to the FDA for consideration for approval, and that will likely happen this year. What about for prevention? So an injectable PrEP regimen, how would that be? Um, this was explored, Rafi Landovitz from UCLA did the HIV Prevention Trials Network 077 study. This was a phase two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled. This was in low-risk HIV-negative participants, so really to describe the safety. You can see just under 200 were enrolled and two-thirds were women on the study. They were randomized three to one to either the oral cab, switching to the IM cab at a dose of 800 milligrams uh, given every three months or 600 milligrams given every two months or placebo, and these were injections, this was double blind. As you might guess, injection site reactions were more common with the cab than the placebo, but very few people discontinued and there were no other differences in safety or tolerability. When they looked at drug levels, they were actually lower in the cabotegravir every three months. So they concluded that the every two month dosing was optimal for cabotegravir. And then they went on to design, oh sorry, one other interesting thing that they looked at was weight gain, weight gain on the study. So you're probably aware that one of the big sessions at Croy was integrase inhibitors and weight gain. And uh, it's unclear what the relationship was, but this study, because it was in HIV-negative people with just an integrase inhibitor, gave an opportunity to look at it. And uh, overall, without going into the details, there were no significant changes in weight in the people that got cabotegravir versus the people that got placebo. Now, they took all of this information and moved forward with a phase three study uh, this is HPTN 083 in MSM in the Americas, 
and HPTN084 in Sub-Saharan Africa in women, and it's a PrEP study. So it's high-risk individuals, and it randomizes them either to IM cabotegravir every other month or one pill once a day TDF-FTC, the standard of care for PrEP. This is an enormous study, 4,500 people. It's well enrolled, it's well on its way. And the primary outcome is HIV seroconversion. So it's head-to-head -head comparison between standard PrEP and a new injectable PrEP. And again, can you think of patients that you're seeing who would benefit from an injectable form of PrEP every other month? And I, again, I think we probably can. So we look forward to that study. Which of the following new HIV drug classes is farthest along in clinical development? Is it an attachment inhibitor, capsid inhibitor, CXCR4 antagonist, or a maturation inhibitor? Go ahead and vote. Mike Sag's favorite show. What is it? Hamilton. No, no, you're supposed to be answering this question, not, not listening to the songs. Okay, I think we're ready. So did you notice the subtext there? They were saying New York is the greatest city in the world. Okay. So you've, the plurality voted for maturation inhibitor, but the correct answer is A, attachment inhibitor. Just so you know. So entry inhibitors. We're looking for a novel mechanism of action and more convenient dosing. HIV entry we know well. It's three sub-steps. CD4 binding occurs when GP120 finds a CD4 receptor and binds to it, and that causes a conformational change that allows the second step, which is binding of HIV to the co-receptor, also called the chemokine receptor, CCR5 or CXCR4. That in turn allows fusion between the viral membrane and the host cell membrane. So we're good at inhibiting HIV entry with approved drugs, right? We have Maraviroc, the CCR5 antagonist, and we have Infuvertide or T20, the fusion inhibitor. But the step we haven't had a drug for is CD4 binding. I mentioned last year Ibilizumab was approved. Now this is a monoclonal antibody that binds to the second domain of the CD4 receptor. So not targeting the virus, but targeting the host cell receptor. That makes it fundamentally different than most of the antiretrovirals. That drug was approved based on short-term activity. The one in development is Fostemzavir, which uh, I'll review next, and that binds again to the virus, to GP120. So Fostemzavir is a prodrug. You swallow it and the Fos is cleaved, and Temzavir is the active compound. Again, it prevents CD4 binding by binding to GP120 and can be given daily without boosting. What you see uh, in the graph here is phase one escal dose escalation study over eight days, and you see at the highest uh, or milligram doses tested that you saw a 1.5 log reduction, so significant antiviral activity with this new mechanism of action. What was interesting is 12% of people had no change at all and when they went back and looked at them, they had polymorphisms in GP120. So this may not work for everybody, but the majority of people it did. 
That led to a phase 2B study looking that enrolled modestly treatment experienced patients who were screened for susceptibility to this agent, and they got a unique backbone of TDF raltegravir and then four fostemzivir doses as listed, and then the control arm got TDF raltegravir and boosted atazanavir. And when they followed them out to 48 and week 96, they had comparable virologic responses. Uh, we learned at CROI this year that they followed them out for another year, so all the way out to week 192, and saw comparable rates of suppression. So that's supported moving forward with a phase three study. This is an interesting study. It's called the BRIGHT study, and it enrolled the population most in need, those with heavily treatment experience. That is, they have MDR, multidrug-resistant HIV, and they weren't screened for susceptibility. Two groups, so 272 were enrolled, but they had one or two remaining ART classes that they hadn't yet taken. And they were randomized to add either fostemzivir 600 twice a day or matching placebo. And then a separate group of 99 individuals had no remaining drug classes available. So this is the most difficult to treat population. Now you may know that the FDA changed the rules about testing new HIV compounds in people with multidrug resistance. And they did this to try to reduce the risk of resistance. So all you need in a phase three study now, according to the FDA, is short-term virologic activity. What's short-term? Well, even seven days is enough to approve a drug in this population. So this was the first study I'm aware of that used this. And at day eight, they saw a 0.2 log reduction in the placebo group versus a 0.8 log reduction in the fostemzivir group. That's statistically significant and likely to be enough for approval. Of course, we'd like to do better for the patients long-term, and so they allowed them to optimize their background, and then they kept following them. And you can see in this difficult-to-treat group, over half of the people who uh, randomized to fostemzivir were able to suppress their viral loads, and importantly, even 38% of the group with no other options who got fostemzivir lowered their viral load below 50 out to week 48. So that's um, impressive results for this new compound. And those are the results in graph form. Comparable results by gender, we heard that at this year's CROI, and the FDA awarded breakthrough status to this drug actually several years ago. They do that when there's a compound that offers something brand new, particularly to treatment experienced patients, and this is expected to be filed for approval with the FDA this year in 2019. Okay, lastly, new mechanisms of action. Sounds so exciting. So the maturation inhibitors are a new class of drugs. When HIV buds off from the cell, its proteins are in the form of long precursor proteins. You see the strip there. Those require specific cleavage for full maturation and infectiousness of the virus. Well, what performs that cleavage? It's our old friend HIV protease. So we're very well uh, acquainted with how you inhibit that. We use protease inhibitors. But the other way you could do it would be to bind two parts of the polyprotein together, and that's what the new class of maturation inhibitors does. It binds two of them together, and then the cleavage can't occur. Now, several of these have come into clinical trials. The one you may have heard of is Bavirumat. That made it all the way to phase two, but 
50% of treatment experienced patients had no response at all to this drug because they had polymorphism. So this compound was abandoned for further use. That was followed by the very attractively named GSK3532795 slash BMS955176. That made it into phase 2B, and look, it showed virologic activity. About 80% were able to suppress their virus, but significant GI intolerance. So this compound, too, was abandoned, followed by GSK2832, which was presented at this year's CROI. This required boosting, but had significant virologic effect, 1.7 log drop, but was abandoned from further development because of the boosting requirement. That leaves us with this compound, which is entering phase one, and supposedly there are dozens of maturation inhibitors that could come to clinical trials. So keep your eye on this class. Three failures for three different reasons, but other ones that will likely come. And then lastly, the HIV capsid inhibitors, again, a new class. So remember, when HIV gets into the cell, it has to dissolve its capsule, shown here as a green triangle. This encases the two viral strands of RNA. And so that um, disassembly is required for the life cycle to proceed. And then at the other end of the spectrum, when the virus is budding off, the capsid proteins have to come together and reform the capsid. So what's interesting about this new class of drugs is it inhibits both of those actions. It inhibits capsid disassembly, and it also inhibits capsid assembly. So hitting the viral life cycle at two different points is, as you know, a powerful strategy and a test question as well. And then we heard data at CROI about the first one to reach uh, clinical trials. This is in HIV-negative people. The compound is GS6207, which, as you correctly identified, is the uh, um, most new compound that's reached clinical development. And uh, this compound has a very long half-life as well, 30 to 43 days. So again, we're talking about dosing this very infrequently, weekly, perhaps every other week, perhaps monthly, this compound could be. And uh, the short story with this dose, it's given sub-Q, is that it achieved target concentrations. And again, what you see here is that people got a single sub-Q dose at time zero, and then well out to three months still had uh, achievable concentrations that would be linked to antiviral activity. So lots of um, promise with this compound and it has now entered phase one in HIV-infected individuals. So we've taken a walking tour of new antiretroviral drugs, and I'll thank you for your attention. Yeah. So uh, we have uh, 10 minutes for uh, questions. One of the issues while we're collecting some questions, uh, uh, maybe Tripp could address this, the pharmaceutical companies generally follow the money uh, and the question is, what is the market for these newer drugs? The long-acting drugs, uh, it is clear. The other drugs, do we, how much do we need more drugs uh, to uh, attack HIV if we're not looking for a cure with them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to turn to you all to help me with this. So how many of you think that you follow patients that would be interested in a regimen, a once weekly oral regimen. 
would that be of interest? Raise your hand if you're interested. Okay, so uh, 43%, yeah. <laughs> so that was good. And then how many of you think you have a patient that would be interested in an all injectable regimen, um, let's say monthly? Okay, again, more than, or about half the room thought that was interesting. And then here's the tough question. How many of you currently are following a patient who's resistant to all 32 approved drugs? Nobody? Really? Yeah. Well, Washington is a very adherent uh, city. Yeah. Yeah. We, we follow regulations. Really, not one person has someone that's, that's resistant to all 32 drugs? I have such a patient. Mike? No. Okay, that's interesting. So that speaks to your question, Henry. Um, when I ask this question around the country, it's usually I get just a small handful of people that are resistant to all available drugs. That's the attraction of the new mechanisms of action, I think, um, because we know they'll have activity. And then I just think the longer half-lives are interesting to us. I, I will go out on a limb and say HIV is really pushing internal medicine in chronic diseases. Uh, look at our colleagues uh, in diabetes and hypertension who've always had adherence issues. Well, we recognize this, right? We used to say one pill once a day, that's the holy grail. And now we're pushing beyond that and say, let's do weekly, let's do injections, let's do implants, let's do more to be able to help people adhere long term. And I think the rest of the field is looking or rest of internal medicine is looking at that as well. Yeah, well certainly it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to have more drugs, because every time we think we have all the drugs we need in infectious disease, we turn out to be wrong. So uh, it's hard to argue with this, but it's great to say. So Dr. Fitzpatrick, the former medical director of DC Medicaid has a question. Shh, quiet, Harry, <laughs> just be quiet. <laughs> uh, good morning. incognito. <laughs> Thank you. Um, about the intramuscular site reactions you talked about, can you say a bit about what, th what that looks like? Characterize it and how long does it take to resolve or subside? And then you didn't say anything about renal side effects for any of these, and if there's any information, can you share that? Sure, so two good questions. Now, I would say our field was sensitized to injectable meds with infuvertide or T20, right? Because people would get these big, um, site reactions and they don't go away and people were troubled by them although I have to say I have one patient who positioned them so they looked like abs <laughs> so this guy I'm not kidding every time I see him I'm like wow your six-pack looks great and he goes that's t20 <laughs> he says to me anyway I don't recommend that but um these injections are different so the average time that someone has a reaction is three days and they tend to go away. And I heard early on from the phase one, two, that patients report that they get less intense over time, and that's absolutely true. I've seen that as well. So it's not the same kind of reaction. You know, when they biopsied the T20 sites, they actually saw cells and sometimes uh, eosinophils, so it was like an allergic reaction. That's not what's going on with these compounds. And then in terms of renal, uh, we have preliminary data on most of the compounds I showed, but no initial renal toxicity has been described. Yeah, and, the, and there, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, finish that thought. No, go ahead, <laughs> right, we, we, okay. you first. Well, so my one patient who could really use one of these things is co-infected with hep B. So I wonder if anybody's looking at the hep B activity of any of these agents, particularly the 
NRTTI. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Does MK8591 have activity against hepatitis B? I don't know. Does anybody know in the room? I wouldn't think so because it hasn't been reported, but, but I don't know for sure. None of the other ones that I reviewed would be expected to. So it's a difficult problem. You, you need to stick with what we know, tenofovir, FTC, 3TC. And there are a couple of questions that maybe you could just clarify a little bit uh, in terms of why there's an oral lead-in to the IM. Is that looking for efficacy or is that looking for tolerability? Yeah, the oral lead-in was out of, of an abundance of caution when this injectable regiments were first being designed. So the thing to know about injectables is once you inject them, you can't get them out. So if someone had, say, a rash or hypersensitivity reaction or uh, hepatitis related to the drug that they get, you're stuck. You, you cannot get that out. So all the trials so far have used that lead-in. It's going to be interesting to see what the FDA does with this and whether they're going to require this longer term as the drug gets approved. Because the good news is, with all the studies I showed you, literally hundreds of people have now taken these injections, and it's never been reported that hypersensitivity or the drug-related hepatitis has occurred. So whether they can now say, okay, then we don't need the lead-in or not, we'll have to wait and see.